Well, good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. Welcome to our online worship gathering on Facebook and YouTube. I'm so glad to have you joining us today. We are going to continue with our series, our teaching series called Reconciling America. And for those of you who have been tuning in the last couple of weeks, we have talked about a couple of concepts that are key to any successful process of healing and reconciliation between individuals or as a society. And I told you that we were going to be unpacking a process that has proven to you to be true, that has proven to work not only interpersonally for us when we have conflicts uh, between us and other individuals or conflicts in families or in, in churches or businesses, but also this process scales up to work even at the level of nations, uh, and cultures as a whole. And so we're unpacking what that process looks like. The first week I told you that the first step was to give space to lament the harm that was done. And we talked all about how to lament and how our faith tradition gives us structures for lamenting. And then the second week, last week, I told you that the second step was that we had to decide that we wanted to be reconciled, that every single one of us, but also all of us together, have a role in deciding whether or not to step forward into a process of reconciliation. And that choice is ours to make, whether we are the person who was harmed or we were the person doing the harm. Today, we're going to talk about the third step that is critical to embracing this path of healing and reconciliation. Before we jump into our text for today, I'm going to ask you, as usual, just to join with me in a moment of prayer as we center our hearts and minds and ask God to speak to us. Would you join me? God, we thank you again for today and for this opportunity for us to gather together. Even though we are socially distanced from each other, we are still connected as a body we are still united in our worship. We ask today that as we come together collectively around Scripture, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would begin to move us further along in the process of people who are ready to be reconciled to those that we have hurt and to those who have hurt us. We pray above all today, God, that you'd give us the courage to be able to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage today is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have your Bible, of course, turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, we will, of course, as always, put the passage up on the screen. This is a little bit longer passage today because there's a story being told here at the heart of our third step towards healing and reconciliation. And I want to take the time to read through this story. This will be a familiar story to many of you, uh, but even so, I think reading it together helps to refresh it in our minds. And sometimes we notice things that we hadn't noticed before. So follow along with me, if you would. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up 
And he grew, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat out of his meager fare and to drink from his own cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now I'm going to pause there just for a moment. We're going to pick it back up again in verse 4. But I want to begin this story that Nathan tells David by just refreshing your memory about what's going on here. This is, of course, in the middle of 2 Samuel. This is the story of King David, the David that is so celebrated by Israel and by the Jewish tradition as one of their greatest kings. And this tells the story of David at one of his low points. We know David as a king who had a heart after God, so to speak, but also made many mistakes. And this was right after David had really committed one of his greatest sins. And in the midst of this moment when David commits some of his greatest sins as a king, God sends the prophet Nathan to come to David and to convince David that what he has done is wrong. And what's curious about this is that when Nathan comes to David, he comes to him and, and simply tells him a story. Instead of jumping right out the, at the beginning and accusing David of committing a crime, Nathan instead begins to tell David this story of this man who owns a ewe lamb. That is a very young lamb, and it's, it's the only lamb he owns. It's the only sheep he owns, and he treats it tenderly and with care and raises it up from a young lamb, and it's it's important to him, and it's, it's a lamb that he loves greatly. So I want to pick it up again there in verse 4 and continue to unpack the rest of the story. Just know that what's happening here is that Nathan is trying to make a point to David by telling him this story. So again, verse 4 says this, Now there came a traveler to the rich man. So Nathan starts by telling about the poor man and this one lamb that he owns that he raises like his own child. And then, of course, there's this rich man who has a huge flock, lots of sheep, lots of uh, all kinds of animals as well, and is very wealthy. So verse 4 picks it up again. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. And so we have this, this devastating story, the story of a, a rich man who has all kinds of flocks and herds, all kinds of sheep and cattle, all kinds of wealth and prosperity. And then there's this poor man. And one of the few things that the poor man has available to him is this one young lamb that he scraped together to buy that's so precious to him that he raises it like it's one of his own children. It even sleeps with him on his own breast. And then along comes a traveler. And this being the Middle East, the ancient Near East, of course, hospitality is an incredibly high value for them. So when a traveler comes along to your house, you have a kind of ethical obligation to feed that traveler and treat that traveler as though he or she is one of your own household, to lavish them with generosity. But of course, the rich man in this story doesn't want to kill one of his own sheep, one of his own cattle to serve this traveler who comes along. And so instead, the rich man reaches out and grabs the lamb, the one baby lamb that the poor man has as his own. And he takes that lamb and he slaughters it and he serves it to his traveler. This is, of course, a terrible story. And David, of course, responds 
uh, in a way that indicates that he recognizes it's a terrible story too. So verse 5, we pick it up there, and then it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David understandably assumes that what Nathan has done is he has come to David to bring him an actual case, something that's actually happened in his own city and an injustice that has occurred under his own watch as the king in Israel. And so David thinks that Nathan is bringing him this case so that he can do something about it. And David is, of course, rightfully angry about this obvious injustice that has been done. And he rises up in anger and says that this man should be punished and that he should make restitution for his crimes. And then verse 7, of course, we have the dramatic climax of this story. Verse 7 says this, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much and more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And here comes the indictment what exactly it is that David has done. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is that turning point of repentance for David. And Nathan telling him this story, and Nathan exposing what is an obvious injustice to David, and then in pointing to David and implicating him as the one who is the rich man in this story, David is cut to his heart. He feels the truth of his own guilt, and he repents to Nathan here at the end of this story. Now, what I want to point out to you is a couple of things. There are all kinds of things going on in this story that could be helpful for us understanding a process of healing and reconciliation, whether it's personal between us and a person one-on-one or corporate uh, as a household or as a church or a community or even as a nation. There's all kinds of stuff in here. For example, first, there is the naming of the wrong that happens, and we see this in verse 9. Verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. Here, Nathan very explicitly points out to David exactly what he's done wrong. That's important, and we're going to get into that later in this series. 
We also see something else here that is a part of what it means to be genuinely healed and reconciled, and that is accountability. David is held accountable for what he's done. Verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, I'll raise up trouble against you from within your own house. I'll raise up trouble for you in your own house. Earlier, he says, Now therefore, because of what you've done, the sword shall never depart from your own house. Nathan points out what's true for all people, all cultures, all societies, all nations, and that is when you commit injustice, the nature of that injustice will continue to infect you and your household and your society and your nation from here on out. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword is a common way of saying it. When we commit injustices, there is a consequence that tends to flow from that and create even more injustice. What Nathan's doing is he is telling David that he must be held accountable for his injustice so that further injustice doesn't flow from it. That's an important part of what we will be talking about later in this series too. There's even something else in here that's an important part of any process of healing and restoration. And that is found in verse 6, if you'll look with me here. This is David's response to hearing the story at the beginning, of course. Nathan tells the story of the, two, the rich man and the poor man and the, the crime that's happened there. And David responds and says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then verse 6, He shall restore the lamb fourfold. David understands that in order for any injustice, any wrongdoing to really be made right, in any, if there's ever going to come a healing and a reconciliation from any harm that's done, then that harm that has been done, whatever has been robbed from the person who is hurt, has to be made right again. I mentioned this last week when I said, you know, just a simple sorry usually isn't enough when you've hurt another person. You need to be able to demonstrate that you genuinely understand the harm that you've done and be willing to make it right in a tangible way. David recognizes here that that's true. He says, whoever has done this should pay back fourfold for what has been done. Sometimes we call this making restitution for the harm that's been done. But there's something more important for our purposes today at the heart of this story. All of this points out some really helpful elements of a process of healing and reconciliation. But even before all of those things occur, I think there's something more important for us to see. And that is from verses 1 all the way through verse 7, Nathan does something that comes before any of these other steps. First, Nathan tells this story to David in a way that David can relate to, in a way that bypasses David's defensiveness because he doesn't think that Nathan is talking about him or anything that he's done. But then by the time Nathan gets to verse 7, he reveals the truth behind the story, which is that David is the one who has committed this offense. So let's go back there again. Verse 7, this is the climax of the story, the big reveal. Verse 7, Nathan says to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much and more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Very simply put, what Nathan does in this story is he boldly and courageously and very wisely and shrewdly tells David the truth. And that is the next step in our process of healing and reconciliation to seek the truth and to speak the truth. This is what must be done in order for this unfolding process of healing and reconciliation to occur. We have to be people, whether we are people who have been individually wronged or we are individuals who have committed a wrong, we have to be people who are willing to look for what's true, to recognize what's true, and then to speak with boldness and courage what's true. Many of you have probably experienced this individually in your own relationships. If you have been in a marriage or in a relationship with your children when they're growing up or even uh, when they are adults, or if you are in important relationships at work or at school or maybe even here at church, and there has been some hurt or some offense or some misunderstanding, then you know perfectly well that the turning point in that relationship, the turning point in making it right again, in that relationship being healed, is when the two of you are willing to see what is actually true about what happened. Now, in interpersonal relationships and one-on-one relationships, that usually looks a lot like what Nathan does here with David. It usually involves either the person who was hurt or another person standing on their behalf, coming to the one who committed the offense and being willing to tell them the truth usually in the form of telling them the story. Here is what you have done. And that story can take all kinds of forms, but I've noticed that in one-on-one relationships, usually the person who has been hurt really needs the opportunity to air out exactly what happened to them. Even if the one who committed the offense comes and says they're sorry, usually the one who's hurt needs the opportunity to speak the truth, needs the opportunity to say, here is what you did to me, and here is how it hurt me, and here is why it was unfair, here's why it was wrong, here's why you've wounded me. And so often we're not willing to do that work, especially if we're the ones who were giving the offense, especially if we're the ones who have hurt somebody else. We, we want that sort of cheap moving on forgiveness, the quick apology that's vague and nonspecific, that doesn't really get at the heart of what we've done. Usually we don't want to have to hear the offense that we committed. We certainly don't want to have to sit and listen while somebody expounds upon why it was so harmful to them. And usually, of course, we aren't willing to to face the truth that harm that we have done to others 
usually means that the more hurtful it was, the more harmful it was, the more they need to process the hurt that was done. And usually that means that we might have to apologize more than once. You can tell, by the way, when somebody who has hurt you isn't really sorry because even if they're willing to apologize, the apology is pretty quick, number one. Number two, it's usually very ambiguous. It's not specific as to the harm that they've done to you. And number three, they resent having to say they're sorry more than once. They want their sorry, their apology, to be a kind of magic word or an incantation that suddenly you know, frees them from all consequences for the harm that they've committed. And very often you hear people say, you know, why are you still holding that against me? I said I was sorry already. And usually that reveals that genuine truth-seeking and genuine truth-speaking hasn't occurred in the relationship. Either the whole truth hasn't been spoken by the person who was hurt, the person who was hurt maybe hasn't been given the opportunity, or maybe doesn't even realize the, the true deep extent of the woundedness they've experienced. Or it may mean that the person doing the hurting, doing the harming, hasn't really given them an opportunity to air it out. And certainly hasn't taken the time to specifically acknowledge that pain and that hurt and apologize for it in detail. I've noticed as a pastor that this happens all the time in our relationships. It happens in my relationships. And, and just like you, I, I have worked really hard at refining my skills and my abilities at you know, giving an apology in the least sincere way possible so that I can just be let off the hook and not have to suffer with the person that I hurt. But that's exactly what's needed. The person who's hurt needs to know that I suffer with them. If I hurt my wife or my children in some way with sharp words or a lack of kindness or compassion or, or maybe a false accusation or perhaps I have blamed them for something that I'm struggling with myself, perhaps I'm defending myself for my immature behavior, I, I typically will give a quick apology and try to deflect away from the real depths of the harm that was done. And what I've learned as a husband and as a father and as a pastor is that I really need to acknowledge the specifics of what I've done. I really need to empathize with the pain that I've caused, and I really need to give full space for the people I've hurt to air out their woundedness and their grief while I sit with the pain that I caused to them. And sometimes, the deeper the wound, the sharper the pain that I cause, the longer it takes for them to recover. And I need to be willing to sit with that too. Now, of course, this is not just true of us as individuals. This is also true of us as groups. And you know, if you've been watching these teachings over the past couple of weeks, that I have explicitly connected this process of healing and reconciliation that occurs between individuals to the processes that we need to undergo as a nation between racial groups. Last week I said, 
When I talked about leaving your gift at the altar, if your brother has something against you, I said that if you are white like me, that our black and brown and Asian and indigenous American brothers and sisters have something against us. And so this dynamic that we're talking about today, seeking the truth and speaking the truth, telling those stories of woundedness, airing it out so that there is an opportunity for healing, that is true for us as a nation just as much as it's true for us as individuals. Our nation is badly in need of a character that is willing to seek the truth and speak the truth where there is a racial injustice in our society. And that just has not been done enough. You might think it has been. You might think, well, you know, Pastor Jason, all we have are all of these stories about the Civil War or slavery that have been told over and over again. I mean, why can't we just move on and get past it? But what maybe you don't know is that our nation didn't just commit racial sins around slavery and the Civil War. Our violence against people of color in this country has just continued year after year, decade after decade, era after era, generation after generation, up to this very day. And those stories and the depth of those stories and the truth of those stories has only begun to be told. You know, a good example of that is, you know, this is now 2021. We're struggling under the pandemic that started in 2019. And over the past year, it has been noted many times the similarities that exist between our time and 100 years ago in our country when there was another global pandemic called the Spanish flu raging across the world and doing all kinds of damage right here in the United States. It's become sort of a commonplace thing to point out all of the eerie similarities between 1918, 1919, and 1920 in our own time of 2018, 2019, and 2020. And there's another similarity between our time today and 100 years ago that I wanna share with you that many of you probably have never heard of before. And that is the red summer of 2019. Because in addition to foreign wars, in addition to a global pandemic, in addition to a slumping economy, there's another similarity in America between our time today, and that was the unfolding violence being committed against black Americans at that time. This violence really began in a big way in about 1917 and continued all the way through at least to the Tulsa massacre of 2000 or 1921. But right in the middle of that period was the Red Summer of 2019, which was called the Red Summer because of all of the, the white mob violence that was committed against black Americans during 1919. During that one year alone, in the midst of this incredibly racially bloody period, during 1919 alone, there were at least 25 white mob riots across the United States in cities all over the country. Those white mobs rose up against black Americans and killed at least 250 black Americans and rendered at least a thousand black Americans homeless by either destroying their homes or destroying their businesses. 
and relegating them to abject poverty. Now, we don't really hear about the Red Summer when we talk about American history. It wasn't in any of my history books growing up as a kid, and I'd be willing to bet it wasn't in any of your history books either, even though historians have since said that that period of time was the bloodiest time of racial violence in American history since the Civil War. And yet, those stories have not been told. Those stories have not been aired out. There has not been enough truth-seeking or truth-speaking where the violence of America against black and brown and indigenous and Asian Americans are concerned. That work is just barely beginning. We have to be a people who are willing to stand up and seek that truth and speak that truth if we're going to be healed as a nation. And this is the church's calling. Nathan's calling of speaking the truth to King David is no less than the church's calling in the world. Unfortunately, the church has too often allied herself with government power and kingly power and nationalistic power and militaristic power. And in so doing, we have abdicated our prophetic calling to be a body, to be a people who are willing to rise up in courage like Nathan did, go to the throne room and say to the king, you have done wrong. But that is exactly what we are called to do as the church. I love the way Walter Brueggemann puts this in his book called Truth Speaks to Power. He says very plainly and very simply this, power is not free to disregard the truth. And above all, we as Christians are to be people who are people of the truth. And what is the truth that Walter Brueggemann is talking about? Well, he's talking, of course, about truth that comes from God. He's talking about gospel truth, the things that are true, that are beyond our governments, beyond our creeds, beyond our religious practices, beyond all of that is what is essentially true at the heart of our faith. And that is this. Walter Brueggemann goes on to put it this way. He says, this story, that is the story of the gospel or the story of God's truth, begins wherever there is enough courage and freedom and daring and sensibility to acknowledge that the pain of ruthless exploitation is not normal and cannot be born. I love the way he puts that. Because, of course, you could say, I think rightly and accurately, that violence against people of color is the character of America throughout our history. And in that sense, you could say that it is entirely and utterly normal. But what Brueggemann is getting at here is that there is a bigger truth that we are all committed to as followers of Christ. And that truth is this, that violence and exploitation against those who are weak is not normal for humanity made in the image of God. And we can never allow it to be seen as normal. That is a burden that none of us can ever carry. 
Reminds me of the famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote that you probably saw in your Facebook feed a million times last Monday on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where Martin Luther King Jr. says that I have decided that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have chosen love instead. And that really is the essence of what we're talking about here. Because at the heart of every lie is hatred. And at the heart of every truth is love. Nathan was loving David when he stood before him, summoned his courage, and spoke the truth to him about his sin. That is our job, not just with each other as followers of Christ, not just within our church as a congregation who is committed to seeking and speaking the truth to power, but it's also our job as a church that stands as a prophetic witness in these United States of America, not allied with Republicans or Democrats, but standing as a prophet before the throne, speaking what is true, no matter what regime is in charge. I'm as glad as any of you that Donald Trump is no longer our president. But Joe Biden has been president now by my count for four days, and there are still babies in cages in this country. Our role as prophets in this culture and in this society is not to ally ourselves with any partisanship, but to be genuinely prophetic, to say what's true no matter who's in charge, no matter what it costs us. And that will require courage. It's my prayer today that we would all have that courage, whether the healing and the reconciliation we seek is personal between us and another individual, or whether it is corporate and social as we seek to live out our calling to speak the truth to power in this age. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for these words, for this scripture, and how it shines a light on our hearts, how it infuses us with inspiration, how your spirit through that inspiration fills our hearts with courage. It's my prayer today that we would have courage as a church, that we would be able to step into the call to bring about healing and reconciliation in all our lives and all our communities. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is CJ, and I've got some announcements here for you this morning. If you are brand new to these online gatherings here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, welcome. We'd love to just kind of point you in the direction of our website at theoceansidesanctuary.org backslash contact, and that'll put you in touch with our team, and they would love to answer any questions you might have or what you're hearing. They would just love to reach out to you virtually and uh, know that you're there. So welcome. We're glad you're with us. Uh, coming up on January 31st at 5 p.m. on the old Zoom, it's the MLK celebration. We would love for you to join members of the OSC anti-racism team and the Disciples of Christ to remember and celebrate the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with this special online event. Once again, coming up on Sunday, January 31st at 5 p.m. This is gonna be Pacific standard time because we've got people all over the country that are wanting to participate in this event. It will also include a special keynote address speaker by Reverend Dr. Alvin Jackson. For more information, it's going to be on the website backslash 
calendar for the MLK celebration. What a timely and encouraging and fantastic event coming up on the Zoom here on the 31st. Also on the 31st at 10 a.m. right after the service, we will be having our congregational meeting. We will be approving the new mission 2023 commitment that you've been hearing so much about the past couple months. And before meeting, uh, we'd love for you to go to the website and review that mission 2023 commitment. Uh, you can do that. We're gonna put this at the bottom of the screen for you. And if you miss it, you can email the staff and team to get uh, the exact link on this, but it's gonna be at the oceansidesanctuary.org backslash revised dash mission dash commitment. That's gonna be at 10 a.m. January 31st, right after the online service. Coming up in February, we're so close to February, it's the Roots class. It's one Saturday only, February 6th from 9 to 12.20. All right, from 9 a.m. to 12.20, the Roots class is our introduction to the Oceanside Sanctuary for those of you that are fairly new to OSC and for those who maybe just want a refresher on what's going on at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Uh, during the Roots class, we'll cover the history of our church and faith. We will cover our values, our vision, our mission, our priorities, and our practices. And also, this is a great time to find out about leadership and membership and how it all works at the Oceanside Sanctuary. And finally, we would love for you, if you are able to, to give to the Oceanside Sanctuary. Um, this church is doing some amazing things in the community and beyond, and we are a 501 C3 nonprofit and survive on gifts from those who love and are part of this church in this community. You can give online at the oceansidesanctuary.org backslash give. Hope you had a great week. What a refreshing week, right? Looking forward to more encouraging weeks to come. Hope you're doing well. Look forward to seeing you soon. Stay healthy, stay safe. See y'all later.